This is Designing the Revolution. Um, you're listening to Chapter 28, The Revolution, Part 2. I think that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, well, first of all, apologies to those that you're listening to this regularly. I think I haven't done a episode for about three weeks. So as it happens, I've been in court, dare I say it. So less said about that, the better. But I'm um, hoping myself and Jamie are going to get on with it and we're going to churn out the rest of the episodes between now and Christmas and uh, and then we'll be done as you might say. Okay so the second talk of this chapter is is about the end game. So in the last in the last episode I was talking about the run-up to this revolutionary event strictly defined as a change of the regime and what I'm going to talk about for the next 20-30 minutes is, is the actual last month and the last week. So this is the apex of, um, of the whole series, I suppose, in the sense that this is the moment, right? When you sit on the throne, as it were, you know, you get the ring or whatever the analogy is, you actually take control of the government. And of course... You know, this was a traditional podcast about revolution. It would be all about this moment. But I spent the last, you know, umpteen months saying to you all, that's not the deal, right? It's all about the preparation work. It's all about uh, creating the culture, the organisational solidity, the, the strategy. And of course, the moment of revolution itself is not the uh, end of the show it's um, winning the peace as much as winning the war okay so I'm gonna, obviously going to be coming on to that in the next uh, the next episodes all right so that said obviously it's interesting to put it mildly how actually regimes change and using the model that we've been developing how does this all sort of work out so the first thing to say is obviously there's variations on the theme, right? It's not like there's one standard last month or standard last week, but there are general patterns and there are general things you can say about how you can actually, you know, push push uh, over to your win. Um, so looking at the last month, um, we've been using this, this model of four elements, four parts of the army that's moving forward and and it's not particularly, the deal isn't particularly about these different elements in and of themselves as I've been saying, the deal is about them all working together in some synergistic whole and directed by a small central group that is strategically like savvy, strategically coherent and of course in service to the cause which is asking a lot and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But let's just look at um, how this last month goes. So here's some things that could or should be happening. First of all, we're building up an assemblies movement, right? So let's say in a medium-sized Western democracy, you're looking at two or 3,000 assemblies happening. They're happening in all the towns all the villagers around the different suburbs of the city. These assemblies are building this movement, building a culture of, of uh, respectful sort of deliberation, 
building confidence, building a collective sense that we are the people and we should be making the decisions rather than the old governmental institutions. So that's going on. At the same time, we've got these cultural events happening and the cultural figures, the cultural events, say festivals, one day events, evening events, banquets uh, and such like. And these are obviously connected with happening at the same time as the assemblies. And then you have the cultural figures coming to the big speeches. We've discussed how these cultural figures have more credibility, particularly at a time of radical change because they're not associated with the old regime. There's plenty of historical examples of this. They're putting it on Twitter, social media. It's building, building momentum. More people are finding out about it because conventional cultural figures, you know, a pop star or, you know, lipstick artist, whatever it is, they're saying, you know, this is what I do. And then at the end of the set, they go, and you know, this is happening. You know, you should get involved in it. And here's the link. All that sort of thing is happening. Then you've got the candidates standing in elections. So this could be happening in the year up to the event, uh, the, the actual revolutionary event. And um, this could be on local councils, people taking over local councils. We've talked about this. But obviously, there could be a... a, a a national election coming up and people are standing. Some people might be standing as independents, um, representing particular communities. That's one model. But the main model we've been looking at is people are going to stand uh, in support of the assemblies. So this these people have come through the assemblies. They're not like, hey, I think I'm great. I'm going to stand. It's more like hey, someone's nominated me, I'm a normal person, but I've got some charisma, I've got service orientation, I'm uh, someone who's, who's going to represent and be faithful to this sort of uh, assembly's ideology of popular democracy. Okay, so, and then we've got the direct action side. So, you know, a few months before the revolutionary event or the big election that leads to the revolutionary event, then you've got... Um, the, all these assemblies coming up with a, a pledge card, like five or six particular things that definitely have to be done. These are the big demands, concrete things uh, about injustices that are happening. And, um, and this gives legitimacy and direction to a civil disobedient, civil resistance movement. So we're saying we're demanding this, you know, we want... Um, you know, an end to corruption, we want the payouts to climate refugees that done properly, and we're going to go and blockade the motorways until this happens, this sort of thing. And you can see the synergization between this isn't a direct action movement or a civil resistance movement that's just made it up. They've got legitimacy from these assemblies. Uh, they've got support from the cultural figures, and they've got people standing up in local council um, chambers or in Parliament saying yes I support I support them. Now all of these things in and of themselves as I said are not particularly interesting and likely to be isolated and all of them can of course like you know degenerate and several people have said to me you know oh as soon as you stand people in elections and they get into Parliament they're going to degenerate you know and become part of the establishment and this is very real not doubting it for a minute. And at the same time, it's not deterministic, right? And you can design it so the probability of this happening is minimised because they are ordinary people, they've come through the assembly's process, they've made an oath, um, 
and they're part of this general revolutionary culture uh, that we're actually going to change the regime. So, you know, dare I say it, before uh, uh, communist revolutions, for instance, there have been communist MPs, you know, it doesn't mean that they're going to desert uh, the communist revolution, just to use a historical example. You know, I'm not saying whether communism is good or bad or all that stuff, I'm just saying that um, it's not impossible. And in the Russian Revolution, you know, there's lots of uh, Soviets and there were people uh, voted into those Soviets and, and, uh, and that was a pathway to power. So that standing in elections, although it's got that impression of being a bad move of degeneration, it's not necessarily if it's combined with these other three elements. Okay, so I'm not saying like that's the last word in the matter, you know, we spend several hours looking at every revolution, every variation on the theme. But hopefully what I've given you is, is here's a working scenario for you to go away and, and think about. And as this last month before, before the elections that leads to revolution, all various sort of things we're going to talk about in a minute, you can see this building crescendo and these things working together and um, uh, um, supporting each other. And then the other element is this external pressure, this big climate 9-11 event, which manifests itself in an economic crisis, running out of money. Um, so we need to understand that the rupture event is a fusion of the ecological and the financial and the social. It's not like, well, it could be this or it could be that. It's always going to be mixed up together. Um, the point being is this is the trigger that takes you into the end game of the last month. Uh, running out of money, holding election. You go and read about revolutions. You can sort of see the pattern. Okay, so as, as we move into the last week, let's look at a few ways in which the last week happens. <laughs> so um, again, this isn't a comprehensive list. It's, in some ways it's a bit arbitrary, but it's just give you a flavour of how, how this end point happens. And I suppose what's important is we've, you know, I've said this a few times, but I'll say it again, we've all been brought up in a culture, you know, over the last 20 years up to 2023, to think revolutions in Western democracies ne never happen. But just to remind ourselves, they have and they will and they happen throughout modern history and arguably, you know, through all of human history. So it is going to happen and this is what it's going to look like. What's going to happen? So just here's one scenario. One scenario is what I would call the Porto Alegre scenario, which is the political party, the Assembly's party, gains a majority in Parliament and, um, and it, it uses that authority to set up a permanent citizens' assembly, a house of citizens, or whatever it's going to be called. So that's what you might call a constitutional route that happened in Porto Alegre. They set up regional assemblies, we talked about it, even though they weren't formally constitutional, they had the legitimacy of popular, uh, popular power, and they created participatory budgets for the city, and the council was forced to uh, accept them. In other words, you've got this dual power dual institution like this alternative institutionalization. So that's a nice simple ideal type uh, last week scenario. You know, they win the election, there's a smooth transition of power to this assembly's party and it creates the new institution. So that's one scenario. The, the next scenario is what you might call the classical 
um, street movement revolution last week uh, situation. So this is where, let's say, there's a big climate, social, financial crisis. Um, there's already the assemblies there demanding, you know, the end to government corruption, corruption of the rich and what have you. They've already got this agenda. It provokes a street movement. Uh, there's thousands of people on the street. This provokes uh, a general strike or at least trade unions going in strikes in solidarity. And you get this like massive crescendo over, you know, seven days to three weeks. And this forces the government to resign. And uh, you might say the big example of this is 1968 in France. You know, you have the students uh, going out on the street and then the trade unions come in and there's a big hoo-ha and you know it goes on the big problem of course with 1968 in so much as it's the beginning of the horizontalist era as it were is there's no central committee to negotiate with the government and and transfer power and you know uh represent the new agenda as you might say so yes this this assembly movement and street movement and the general strike has to have this central committee for want of a better word which is going to be trusted to actually negotiate the transfer of power. Okay, so you can see like this is an ideal type. It could, you know, it could be combined with the Porto Alegre uh, model. You know, they win the election, but they're not going to be able to do what they want without the street movement, for instance. All right, so the third scenario, which might sound a bit counterintuitive, but it does happen, which is the government just collapses. <laughs> Yeah, under the weight of its own contradictions. So throughout history, there's been examples where the elites are so totally self-destructive, incompetent, overwhelmingly like useless that they even begin to hate themselves and want to be taken over, dare I say it. And, you know, not always, of course, but this is the situation which could be quite possible because there's so much denial around the climate emergency that when the shit hits the fan and millions of people start dying in big climate, you know, 9-11 type events, the, the collapse in the legitimacy of the neoliberal pretense is going to be so extreme that people are going to say, I don't know, you know, we totally messed up. So you can see this a bit like, you know, in Britain before the Second World War, you know, there was this massive appeasement sort of process and then Hitler went and invaded Poland and everyone went... <laughs> You know, we need a totally new government. They totally failed. They, they made totally the wrong call. So again, like this, this sort of collapse obviously isn't going to happen in a vacuum. There is going to be the street movement. It's going to be the assembly. It's going to be the assembly MPs and all the rest of it. But they're basically going to walk into power because the whole thing's just collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions. All right. And then the final one is maybe a combination of the above three, but... It's a series of confrontations and the confrontations create a backfiring effect which we've talked about extensively in terms of how civil disobedience works. So there could be a general election, there could be an, an assembly um, street movement, it could be a general strike and then the police come out and then the army come out and some people get shot or there's a big, you know, the government presses that button and engages in some violence maybe some people die and that creates this big backfiring effect of even more people come out to the streets even more unions go on strike even more cult cultural figures you know go on their social media going this is this is no good you know this has to end this government's corrupt as fuck it's going to have to go 
and and so you get the the mix of the other the other scenarios okay so again we could talk about this in in more detail and use lots of historical examples but it gives what i'm hoping to do is give you a flavor of how this is going to work out and obviously no one really knows right it's not like do this or do that you're going to have to make it up as you go along you know but that's the direction of travel and and the big ask is a new regime just to be clear right this isn't some amorphous revolution where you know we broadly want sort of things to change the whole basis of this series on on designing the revolution it has got a concrete specific constitutional aim it's not just that of course it's you know a cultural and social and spiritual revolution and all the rest of it but it's got this essential element to it which is we don't want representational parliaments anymore what we want is permanent citizens assemblies and there's going to be variations on the theme of course and we're going to talk about this later but this is the this is the moment of taking power the the government that has been voted in as it were by the represented representational representational uh, mps stands down and the new institution comes in now this you know is going to be messy there's going to have to be a ratification process maybe it's not even ratified but if you're going to point to the day of the revolution as it were that's the day when the government stands down and the new uh, central committee as it were of of this big social up uprising um says right we're going to have a citizens assembly um all right, so the sort of elephant in the room is who the hell is this central committee, right? <laughs> um, so to sort of enter into this little debate or big debate, um, I want to make a separation between the organisation and the movement, okay? So we've talked about this again in the lead up to this revolutionary period, which is people, you know, the horizontalist inheritance, as it were, of Western radicalism is that's a movement, it's going to take power, you know, dum bum bum. And what we've been saying for weeks and weeks is no, there has to be an organisation, there has to be a formal power structure, there has to be a membership, there has to be those people those people are running the show, they have our trust, and we have a mechanism to get rid of them. You know, there's various constitutional arrangements. And the, that organisation is basically going to take control in that moment of revolution. And it's supported synergistically, as it were, with this big uprising where people have never heard of the organisation is coming on the street in the last moment, or an organisation isn't part of the organisation. Um, the tr trade union isn't, uh, but they're coming in at the last moment because they're going to go, what the hell, you know, we need some big change. So you've got the, the advantage of this rapid horizontalist uprising because you've got loads of examples of that. And you've got the advantage of having the central committee, which is objectively necessary in order to actually create a new centre of power. And the centre of power is not a social construction. What I mean by that is it's not you can do away with it, 
right? It's a metaphysical reality. And this is the big learning for the 21st century, you know, and why horizontalist is, is philosophically illiterate, as it were, is that the center of power means that decisions have to be made which affect everyone and someone makes those decisions and if you don't have someone making those decisions someone's making those decisions anyway right by the nature of the decision not being made someone has to decide to take power otherwise the people who have power continue to have power it's not like there's some period where there isn't power because power is rooted in the necessity to make decisions which affect everyone or make decisions which aren't going to affect everyone, which affects everyone anyway, right? You see, hopefully you see what I mean, been talking about this for weeks. <laughs> now, that does not mean that there aren't massive problems with having a central committee. So the whole horizontalist critique which came out of you know, the revulsion against Stalinism and all the rest of it in 1968, has a massive validity, but it's not the whole story. So the whole purpose of this series is, is to make this proposition that we can't do without the Central Committee, but it doesn't have to turn into Stalinism. It doesn't have to turn into some nasty yucks, you know, 20th century violent, patriarchal bollocks situation. In so much as it's not, we have to design in elements of that central committee which minimise the probability, right? So there's no guarantees here. There's nothing I'm saying here that's guaranteed. But we're saying the probabilities are better than just sitting around waiting to die or having a horizontalist revolution which by definition is going to lose control and, you know, reactionary forces are going to move into the vacuum and all the rest of it. You know, Egypt 2012 and all that stuff. All right, so we've already established that the Central Committee is coming through the organisation, which is taking the vanguardist position in the, in the revolutionary episode. So how do we stop that committee going, thank you very much, you know, and going down this uh, path of going, uh, actually, we're going to stay in control and actually we're going to use the state monopoly of violence to do in any competitors and all those things that happened in 1917 if you want to read the history of the classical sort of mess up that revolutions tend to end up in. All right, so I've got four, four or five ideas here which are historically like, you know, drawn from history in so much as it doesn't always happen. So for instance, the first one is is that the revolution is going to be non-violent. The reason why this is important, we've discussed this a lot of times, right, isn't just because it's ethical to be non-violent. It isn't just that as soon as you have violence in a culture, it basically destroys the collectivity, the, the sociability of the culture. It's also because if you have a violent culture, then the people that take control are going to be in that culture and the temptation, obviously, is going to be, well we'll just use violence because that's the tradition we've come from. That's a total disaster, but it doesn't necessarily have to happen if there's a culture of service and, and a deep democratic culture which comes out of this assembly creation. So the historical example here 
which is, is the American Revolution, where there was a long tradition of town hall meetings, you know, local democracy and what have you. And Washington, you know, is the main general. He, you know, won lots of the, of the battles and all the rest of it. And he could have taken control, but he didn't because of the quality of his leadership, because he was already embedded in this culture of he was in service to this democratic revolution, which was genuinely democratic. And obviously, you know, it was lucky because he was, you know, that's, I'm sure he had lots of downsides and blah, blah, blah. But on, a partic on, the, particular, on the particular subject of wanting to take power, he didn't. He said, right, I'm going back to my farm. Very, very, thank you very much. So you've got these different elements. Obviously, you need to have some cool person with a great character. You know, so that's not an insignificant issue. You need to have, you need to have this general culture of democracy. And the third element is you need to be nonviolent. Okay, so that's, that's useful. The second thing is, is the Central Committee has to ask permission. So a few months ago, well, yeah, two or three months ago now, uh, we're in December 2023 making this. As some of you may know, there was a big, uh, thousands of people sat down in, in the Netherlands uh, to get the government to stop subsidies on fossil fuels. And, and I talked to the organisers of it. And to be honest, I can't remember whether it was my idea or their idea, but basically they came up with the idea that they, their big innovation was the A22 innovation, which was you've got to have the central group that's making these executive decisions. But they had this really good move, which we both discussed, myself and this group, of saying, let's ask the movement for permission. And the great thing about this is, is you're creating a vulnerability. So it's the opposite of the violent culture where you're basically saying, we're in control, and if you don't like it, we're going to purge you, we're going to get rid of you, and ultimately we're going to kill you. It's, the, it's, the other, it's a completely different approach, which is saying, here we are, we think we're the people for the job, we think that it needs a central committee, we're putting ourselves before you, if you don't want us, then say so, and obviously that needs to have some sort of institutional form, you know, maybe if you're going to vote it. And eight times out of ten, people will go, okay, yeah, you know, you're not only do you seem to be the right people for the job, but also we're impressed by you showing your vulnerability and saying, you know, if you don't want us, fair enough, but, you know, it's over to you guys. Um, so this, this creates this trust bond between the central committee and the organisation and the movement, right? Uh, this is what needs to be designed, and that's a central part of it. So there's two or three other sort of elements here which are more like, institutional rules. So the first one is rotation, right? These people aren't going to be there forever. When they say we're going to be part of the Central Committee, everyone knows that in a year they're going to be replaced or at least they're open to be renominated in some uh, constitutional way. And they know that when they're put into position and the movement and the organisation knows that as well. So it's all transparent. So if they do decide to go oh, you know, I think I'm great, I'm going to stay on for another year. It's like everyone knows they're being a dick. <laughs> it's like they, the, the person can't pretend that they, they can't, well, it wasn't really clear, you know, and all that sort of stuff. The Sortition Council. So, you know, this is the idea of dreamed up with a few, few other people. So it's maybe cool, it might not be. But you have the Central Committee and then you have a Sortition Council above it. We've talked about this a bit. So it's a little bit like a board, it's selected from the organisation. So it's ordinary people that have common, got common sense, they've got service orientation, and they're saying, 
they've got the power basically to make sure that central committee has operational control over the revolution you know they're going to negotiate and all the rest of it but there's a com there's a confineness to their power they can't break the constitution they can't go off and become dictators if they're abusive or turn violent they can say no you know that's the end of you and if there's some big division or conflict within the central committee they can mediate on it and ultimately arbitrate on it so there's some variations on the theme of how that constitutionally can be done so then you get the advantage of accountability with the op with the advantage of operational sort of autonomy i.e you know to move people around you know in the final week and negotiate with the government and all the rest of it um, and finally of course you know it's temporary right central committee is there basically to oversee that that last month that last uh, week to actually uh, have a organized and peaceful transfer of power or at least to to the extent that's possible and and then they know within six months they've got to stand down so I'm listening to Mike Duncan's what's it called um, um, history of Rome you should listen to it. it's great fun so you know with the Romans this is a bit of a cliche but when the shit hit the fan they would elect elect a dictator and the dictator would you know go and deal with the crisis and bash up the barbarians or the Carthaginians or whatever it was and and then when, once that was done often the dictator stood down of of his own accord because you had this republican civic service orientation which is one of the reasons you know the Roman Republic was so successful it wasn't just a total power thing although you know arguably it was later on or they were just deposed anyway and someone you know killed them or some variation on the theme the point is is history is full it's full of examples of people being power mad but there's numerous examples of people uh, taking a leadership role and then standing down peacefully uh, and I've given you a few details of it so yes this is very possibly going to fail and failure is good as we've established in the sense that you know this could happen in Italy you know it could happen in New Zealand it could be a total failure in which case everyone goes right we're not going to do it like that we're going to you know iterate on it we're not going to throw the baby out with battle ball for water but we're going to analyze it like we've done in A22 you know do a campaign what went well what went, didn't well you have a debrief all this sort of thing you learn from it so that the next iteration which happens in Canada or something is going to learn learn from it so we need to understand it's not like every like country in the world or whatever is, is in one week going to do this there's going to be a sequence there's going to be uh, uh, moments where the whole process steps back you know goes into reverse and then it learns and it goes forward and the reason it's going to be learning is because of this democratic participatory structure you know and and this open learning process okay so the last thing to say is is I'm going to to, after I've gone through the whole revolutionary process I'm going to do a few like appendixes sort of episodes to look at sort of broader issues and one of them is this to look more deeply at this culture of service which sort of connects with a more metaphysical or spiritual revolution which um, really deconstructs the whole logic of power that's been going on for 10,000 years that's a big project but I think it's a necessary project and I think this moment of revolution 
has to be informed by a very profound change in how we see the purpose of a good life. So we, people don't give up their power simply because they're being ethical. They give up their power or they enter into power in service because they literally think it's a stupid thing to do to become a dictator for themselves, right? That power is not, it's not actually that cool. You know, there's other things to do, like see your kids and go and paint a picture. You see what I mean? So that's something that needs exploring. And, you know, I'm humble enough to say that, you know, there's going to be lots of people need to input on that and it needs to be drawn from many different traditions. The point I'm trying to make is in the 21st century, we need to dismantle that logic that's been going on, you know, since 5000 BC. And the reason why we're going to um, realise that it needs to be dismantled and be successful in it being dismantled is because it's brought us to the point of human extinction, i.e. the hubristic notion that we can destroy nature and destroy colonised peoples and all the rest of it. It's bollocks. What it's going to do is just going to make us all enormously, like, uh, uh, fucked, isn't it? That's what I'm trying to say. It's just no good. It didn't work, you know. Good idea maybe at the time, but it doesn't work. Let's reconstruct what it is to be human and all the rest of it. Um, all right, so I'm going to leave it there. So there you go. There's the revolution for you. Uh, what I'm going to move on to in the next episode, the next episode is the revolution after the revolution, because as everyone should know by now, it's not a single thing. And most revolutions disintegrate into a total mess because no one's thought about the day after. So we definitely need to be thinking about the day after. And I'll tell you about that next time. Thanks.